Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 13 of the Second Age of the Crusaders and the title is The Fall of Jerusalem. I'm actually recording this episode on a few days holiday in a small cottage in a remote part of Wales and nearby me are the remains of a Norman castle built at the same time as the First Crusade and it makes me realise what an extraordinary race the Normans were and how they were simultaneously conquering Wales in the far west as well as Palestine and Jerusalem in the East in the First Crusade. And it makes me realise that this Norman expansionism in the 11th century was really the foundation for the success, I think, of the First Crusade and the establishment of the Crusader kingdoms. But let's get back to the later history of the Crusades in the 13th century, which is where we've reached. And in the last couple of episodes, we've heard how the extremely unusual German Emperor Frederick II recovered Jerusalem in 1229, but failed to win security for Outremer, as the Crusader states were called. His bloodless crusade, which historians call the Sixth Crusade, centred on a bizarre agreement with the main Muslim leader, Al-Kamil, which restored Jerusalem to the Crusaders, but without its walls, unless Frederick was there personally to rebuild them. And since he left Jerusalem soon after arriving, the walls were never rebuilt, and it was left completely defenceless. This left Outremer in a vulnerable position. Indeed, as we've discussed before, the Muslims could probably have destroyed the Crusader states at this time. But they didn't, probably for three reasons. One was that they were fighting each other, particularly the sultans of Egypt and Syria. Second, they also quite liked the trade with the West that came through the Crusader cities on the coast, thanks really to the Italian merchants. And third, they were also, I think, quite rightly worried that if they did destroy the Crusader states, this might provoke retaliation from the West in the form of a major new crusade. Now, in the last episode, we heard about the civil war called the Lombard War between the German Emperor Frederick's Lombard troops led by his commander Filangieri and the Crusader barons who didn't want to acknowledge Frederick as king of Jerusalem. The barons won this war and Filangieri ended up besieged behind the walls of the city of Acre. Meanwhile, on the Arab side, there was also civil war between the Sultan of Egypt and Palestine, who was Al-Kamil, and his various rivals. Now, as the two sides fought each other, there are arrived from the West in 1239, a new group of crusaders led by Tybalt, Count of Champagne. Historians don't regard Tybalt's crusade as large enough to merit being called the Seventh Crusade, which is still to come, but it is often referred to as the Baron's Crusade. So in this episode, we'll hear what happened to Tybalt's crusade and how in 1244 the crusaders came to lose Jerusalem for good. As before, I'll read extracts from my abridged version of Sustainable Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. In 1239, Tybalt, Count of Champagne, had arrived at Acre, determined to fight the Muslims. The barons in Outremer recommended an attack on the Egyptian strongholds of Ascalon and Gaza. 
Therefore, on the 2nd of November, Tybalt and his soldiers set out from Acre for the Egyptian frontier with detachments from the military orders and several local crusader barons. As they were marching to Jaffa, a spy told Peter of Brittany that a rich Muslim caravan was moving up the Jordan Valley towards Damascus. Peter at once rode out with Ralph of Soissons on 200 knights and laid an ambush for it. The caravan was well armed and in the ensuing battle, Peter was nearly killed, but in the end the Muslim soldiers fled, leaving a great herd of cattle and sheep in the Christians' hands. Peter drove his booty back in triumph to Jaffa, where his colleagues had now arrived. As food for the army was running short, his victory was very welcome, but it made an enemy of An-Nazir of Karak. Meanwhile, an Egyptian army under the Mameluk Rukin Adin had hastily been sent from the delta to Gaza. The first news that reached the Christians of its arrival told of only a thousand men. Henry of Bar, who was jealous of the Count of Brittany's success with the Muslim caravan, determined at once to attack it and secure all the credit and the loot. He kept his plan secret from all but a few friends, such as the Duke of Burgundy and various lords from eastern France. Then the two wardens of the kingdom, Balian of Sidon and Udo of Montbéliard, who were resentful of Tybalt's command, together with Walter of Jaffa and one of the Ebelins, John of Arsouf, were admitted into the company. At nightfall on the 12th of November, the whole party, 500 horsemen and over a thousand foot soldiers prepared to march out against Gaza. But the news leaked out and as they were mounting their horses, Tybalt, with the three grand masters of the orders and the Count of Brittany, came up and first begged, then ordered them back to the camp. But Henry of Bar refused to be deflected. Accusing the king and his friends of cowardice, he defied his command, and the cavalcade set out into the moonlit night. Tybalt, who suspected the true strength of the enemy, was powerless to prevent it. Next morning, he moved his camp up to the walls of Ascalon to be at hand, should help be needed. The Count of Bar was so confident of success that when he drew near to Gaza about dawn, he halted his men in a hollow in the dunes of the seashore and told them to rest a while, but the Egyptian army was far larger than he knew and its spies were all around. The emir Rukunadin could scarcely believe that his foes could be so foolish. He sent bowmen to creep round sandhills until the crusaders were almost encircled. Walter of Jaffa was the first to realise what was happening. He advised a swift retreat for the horses could not be manoeuvred in the deep sand. He himself rode away to the north along with the Duke of Burgundy and the other knights from Outremer followed as soon as they could. But Henry of Bar would not leave the infantry whom he had led into the trap and his closest friends stayed with him. The battle was soon over. With their horses and their heavy infantry floundering in the dunes, the crusaders were powerless. More than a thousand were killed, including Count Henry himself. Six hundred more were captured and carried off to Egypt. Among them was the Count of Montfort and the poet Philip of Nanteuil, who spent his days in prison writing rhymed maledictions about the military orders, whom, with more passion than logic, he blamed for the failure of this senseless expedition. When the fugitives reached Ascalon, 
Tybalt forgot his caution and wished to march on Gaza at once to rescue his comrades. But the Knights of Outremer would not agree. It would be folly to risk the army, and certainly the Muslims would slay what captives they had rather than lose them again. Tybalt was angry and never quite forgave his hosts, but there was nothing to be done. The diminished army moved slowly back to Acre. Meanwhile, An-Nazir of Karak replied to the crusader attack on the Muslim caravan by marching on Jerusalem. The holy city was undefended except for the section of wall by St. Stephen's Gate, which Frederick had begun to construct, and a citadel incorporating the Tower of David, which had recently been strengthened. It owed allegiance not to the government at Acre, but to Philangeri at Tyre, and he had neglected to supply an adequate garrison. An-Nazir occupied the city without difficulty, but the soldiers in the citadel held out for 27 days until their supplies were exhausted. They surrendered on the 7th of December in return for safe conduct to the coast. When he had destroyed the fortifications, including the Tower of David, and nazir retired to Karak. After the disaster at Gaza, Tybalt moved his forces northward to Tripoli. An envoy had come from the Emir of Hama, al-Muzaffar II, who had quarrelled with all his Ayubite relatives and was threatened by a coalition between the regent of Aleppo and the Prince of Homs. In return for crusader help, he offered to cede one or two fortresses and held out hopes for his conversion to Christianity. Tybalt accepted the offer with alacrity, but his advance to Tripoli was enough to deter al-Muzaffar's enemies, and the emir sent politely to say that his services would not be required after all. It was while the crusade lingered at Tripoli that Ayub, who was al-Kamil's son, made himself master of Egypt and war broke out between him and Ishmael, the sultan of Damascus. Ayub, whose first objective was the defeat of Ishmael, offered the crusaders the release of the prisoners made at Gaza and the right to occupy and fortify Ascalon in return for their neutrality. The Grand Master of the Hospital then signed the agreement at Ascalon with the Sultan's representative. It was a diplomatic triumph for Ayub. Tybalt was delighted to secure the release of Amalric of Montfort and his other friends and decided to return to Europe. After paying a hurried pilgrimage to Jerusalem, he sailed from Acre at the end of September 1240. His crusade had achieved little. Then, on the 11th of October, a few days after Tybalt's departure, a still more distinguished pilgrim arrived at Acre. Richard, Earl of Cornwall, was the brother of King Henry III of England, and his sister was the wife of the Emperor Frederick. He was aged 31 and was considered to be one of the ablest princes of his time. His pilgrimage had the full approval of the German Emperor, who gave him powers to make what arrangements he thought were best for the Kingdom of Jerusalem. He was horrified at the anarchy that he found on his arrival. The temple and the hospital were almost at open warfare with each other. The local crusader barons, except for Walter of Jaffa, supported the Templars. Therefore, the Hospitallers were beginning to seek the friendship of Philangeri and Frederick's men. The Teutonic Order kept itself apart. It garrisoned its Syrian castles, but devoted its main attention to Cilicia, where the Armenian king entrusted it with large estates. Philangeri himself still held Tyre and was responsible for the administration of Jerusalem. 
On his arrival, Richard hurried to Ascalon. There he was met by ambassadors from the Egyptian sultan, who asked him to confirm the treaty made by the hospitallers. Richard agreed, but to placate the crusader barons, he insisted that the Egyptian should confirm the sessions of territory made by Ishmael of Damascus and should add to it the remainder of Galilee, including the fortresses of Beaver, Mount Tabor and Tiberias. Ishmael, who had lost control of eastern Galilee to Annazir, could not prevent this further session. Meanwhile, the Frankish prisoners captured at Gaza were returned in exchange for the few Muslims that were in Christian hands. The Kingdom of Jerusalem thus recovered all its ancient lands west of the Jordan as far south as the outskirts of Gaza, with the ominous exception of Nablus and the province of Samaria. Jerusalem remained unfortified, but Odo of Montbeliard, whose wife was the heiress of the princes of Galilee, began to rebuild the castle of Tiberias, and the work on Ascalon was completed. As governor of Ascalon, Richard appointed Walter Penemprier, who had been Philangeri's representative at Jerusalem. Probably on Richard's suggestion, the Emperor Frederick sent a congratulatory embassy to the Sultan Ayub. His two ambassadors were received with great honour and pomp at Cairo and remained there until the early spring. Richard himself stayed in Palestine until May 1241. He'd behaved with great wisdom and tact and had made himself generally accepted as temporary viceroy of the kingdom. The emperor was well satisfied with him and everyone in Outremer regretted his going. He returned to Europe to a career of high hopes but small fulfilment. Then on the 5th of April 1243, Conrad of Hohenstaufen, son of the German Emperor Frederick and Queen Yolanda, was 15 years old and officially came of age. It was his duty to appear at Acre and personally take possession of the kingdom. His father had no longer any right to the regency. But, though the young king at once sent Thomas of Acera as his deputy, he showed no signs of coming himself to the east. The crusader barons therefore considered it their legal obligation to nominate as his regent the next available heir. This was Alice, Queen Dowager of Cyprus, his great-aunt. After her divorce from Beaumont V, Alice had reconciled herself with her Ebeling cousins, and in 1240, with their approval, she had married Ralph, Count of Soissons, a young man about half her age who had come to the east with Tybalt. Alice and Ralph were then sworn in as the new leaders of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Meanwhile, on the Arab side, in 1244, civil war broke out between Ayub, Sultan of Egypt, and Ishmael, Mahil, Sultan of Damascus. Ayub had found allies in the Khwarizmian Turks, who ever since the death of their king, Jalal al-Din, had been wandering through the Jazeera and northern Syria, raiding and pillaging as they went. A coalition of the Ayubite princes of Syria had attempted to control them in 1241 and had severely beaten them in a battle not far from Edessa. But the Khwarizmians then established their headquarters in the countryside between Edessa and Haran and were still prepared to sell their services to the highest bidder. 
Ayub had been in touch with them for some time, and now he invited them to invade the territory of Damascus and Palestine. In June 1244, the Chorismian horsemen, 10,000 strong, swept down into Damascene territory, ravaging the land and burning the villages. Damascus itself was too strong for them to attack, so they rode on into Galilee, past the town of Tiberias, which they captured, and southward through Nablus towards Jerusalem. The Crusaders suddenly realised the danger. The newly elected Patriarch Robert hastened to Jerusalem with the Grand Masters of the Temple and the Hospital and reinforced the garrison in the fortifications that the Templars had just rebuilt. But they did not themselves dare to remain there. On the 11th of July, the Charismians broke into the city. There was fighting in the streets, but they forced their way to the Armenian convent of St. James and massacred the monks and nuns. The crusader governor was killed in making a sortie from the citadel, together with the preceptor of the hospital, but the garrison held out, but no help came from the crusaders, so they appealed to their nearest Muslim ally, An-Nazir of Karak. An-Nazir had no liking for the Christians and had resented the necessity of an alliance with them. So, after sending some troops which cowed the Charismians into offering the garrison a safe conduct to the coast, if they would surrender the citadel, he then dissociated himself from the fate of the city of Jerusalem. On the 23rd of August, some 6,000 Christians men, women and children marched out of the city, leaving it to the Chorismians. As they moved along the road towards Jaffa, some of them looked back and saw Frankish flags waving on the towers, thinking that somehow rescue had arrived. Many insisted on returning towards the city, only to fall into an ambush under the walls. Some 2,000 perished. The remainder, as they journeyed down to the sea, were attacked by Arab bandits. Only 300 reached Jaffa. Thus, Jerusalem passed finally from the Crusaders. Nearly seven centuries would pass before a Christian army would once again enter its gates. The Chorismians showed little mercy to the city. They broke into the church of the Holy Sepulchre. A few old Latin priests had refused to leave the city and were celebrating Mass there. These were slain, as well as the priests of the native denominations that were there. The bones of the kings of Jerusalem were torn up from their tombs and the church itself was set on fire. Houses and shops throughout the city were pillaged and churches burned. Then, when the whole place was desolate, the Chorismians swept on to join the Egyptian army at Gaza. While the Chorismians sacked Jerusalem, the knights of Outremer had been gathering outside Acre. There they waited for the Muslim armies of Ismail of Damascus to join them, for Ismail offered an alliance against Ayub of Egypt on the 4th of October 1244. The Crusader and Muslim forces began to march southward along the coast road. Though An-Nazir and his Bedouin kept themselves apart, there was perfect friendship between the Franks and the Muslims. The Christian army was the largest that Outremer had put into the field since the fatal day of the Battle of Hattin. There were 600 lay horsemen, led by Philip of Montfort, Lord of Tyrone and Tyre, and Walter of Brienne, Count of Jaffa. 
The military orders of the temple and the hospital both sent over 300 knights, each under the two grand masters, Armand of Perigord and William of Chateauneuf. There was a contingent from the Teutonic knights. Bermond of Antioch sent his cousins, John and William of Bertrand, and John of Ham, constable of Tripoli. The patriarch Robert himself accompanied the army with the Archbishop of Tyre and Ralph, Bishop of Ramla. There was a proportionate number of sergeants and foot soldiers. The Muslim troops were probably more numerous, but lighter armed, and Nazir seems to have provided Bedouin cavalry. The Crusaders and their Muslim allies would now have to fight one of the greatest battles of the Crusades. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be delighted if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear about the Battle of La Forbie, the greatest battle fought by the Crusaders since the Battle of Hattin. <laughs> <laughs>